in Mark's Gospel, looking at some of the key events in the final week of Jesus. We're going to wrap up this series this, today. We're actually going to come back and, and look at the, the crucifixion with more focus this evening. But if you've not been here for the series, just, let me just remind you of, of perhaps events you've, you've heard about. We studied together at the end of chapter 14, uh, Jesus' betrayal by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot. He was betrayed with a kiss. We said it was with a symbol, an act of love, that Judas fulfilled his mission of hate. Jesus was arrested by the temple guards in the Garden of Gethsemane just after he had risen from his knees. And his disciples that night in the darkness deserted him. We looked last time, two Sundays ago at Jesus' trial before the religious courts, the Sanhedrin. It was a kangaroo court. They knew he was innocent, but they condemned him as guilty. They condemned him to because they said he was a blasphemer. Little did they know that they were the ones guilty of blasphemy. And then we saw Jesus before the civil court, before Pilate. And Pilate, he too said that Jesus was innocent. What evil has this man done? And yet he too condemned Jesus to death because of treason. Last Sunday evening, we, we, we looked together at Mark 15, verses 16 to 20, what we called Jesus' coronation, mock coronation. Remember what they did? They, they, they put that purple robe on him, purple being the color of royalty. Well, if he claims to be a king, well, let's make him look like a king. But even as they put the robe on his back, it was to inflict pain because of the lacerated wounds of his back. Then they twisted together the Roman soldiers at a crown of thorns and they jammed it painfully on the brow of his head. They crowned him as a king. And then to add insult to injury, the soldiers got down and bended knee and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And instead of anointing him with precious oil, the soldiers decided that in this mock coronation, they would anoint Jesus with the saliva of their mouths. And each one of them spat on him. And then we know from Matthew's account they'd placed a scepter in his hand. They took the scepter from his hand and they used it as a makeshift baseball bat and they beat him repeatedly. And then after they had had their fun, mocking Jesus as a king, they got up. And we're going to pick things up as Jesus begins his procession his mock procession, his royal procession. And what, what I think we're going to see this morning is this. Jesus' greatest moment, if you like, of shame and suffering is paradoxically Jesus' greatest moment of victory and glory. 
Mark wants us to see that Jesus' crucifixion is not the defeat of a humiliated would-be king. It's actually his enthronement as king over all. So if you get your Bible there, just look down at verse 20, the end of verse 20. After they've stripped him and put the purple cloak back on him, we read these words, and they led him out to crucify him. The royal procession for Jesus began at Pilate's palace, and they would make their way down through the old city of Jerusalem, down the Via Delta, and they would eventually get outside the city limit to the hill called Golgotha. If you were watching the coronation yesterday, you'll remember that after the coronation service, there was the royal procession from Westminster Abbey to Buckingham Palace. There has been no such ceremonial military event in our nation for 70 years like the one we beheld yesterday. And it was quintessentially British. It was majesty and splendor. It was pomp and pageantry. Our king and queen rode in a golden carriage. Loyal, devoted, dedicated service men and women march proudly and in honor of their king and queen. And I mention that only to say this. Jesus' procession was nothing like that. His procession from Pilate's palace had no majesty or splendor. No fanfare. There weren't thousands of people lining the streets in honor of him. Rather, this was a royal procession that would be filled with humiliation, mockery, and torture. Charles was escorted by his servicemen, men of, women of the, the armed forces. Jesus was escorted by four Roman soldiers and one centurion. They weren't his friends, they weren't his fans, they were his execution squad. And behind them would have been a servant carrying a plaque with the charge against Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, the gospel accounts don't tell us how many Passover pilgrims lined the streets. But we do get the sense from the gospel accounts that the Passover pilgrims who watched this condemned criminal come down the Via Della Rosa weren't singing his praises. Weren't cheering his name. Weren't saying, God save the king. Now one of the ways that the Romans, when they had a condemned criminal who they were marching to be crucified, would add insult to injuries that they would make them carry the crossbeam. We know from John chapter 19 verse 17 that Jesus initially on this procession carried the cross. And this was deeply humiliating because he'd been flogged, 
scourged, beaten, abused. And now he was being made to put a rugged cross on his back. What's striking is we read verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Do you know what happened? The royal procession grew to a halt. It came to a standstill. Because at some point on their way down through the old city of Jerusalem, Jesus collapsed. He couldn't carry the cross. And it's not hard to to, to think why for the last 24 hours he's barely at the last meal he had was in the upper room the last thing he went was before his whole experience from the betrayal the arrest the trials have been filled with mockery and humiliation and torture the worst torture imaginable And now as he's got the cross on his back, he does not have enough strength in the tank, as it were, to keep on going. So if you want to journey with Jesus, picture him flat on his face, in the dark. And we know that because the Romans had to compel Simon the Cyrene to help him. Now, Simon Cyrene is a really interesting individual. We're told here that he was a a passerby who was coming in from the country. We can't be sure that he was actually a Passover pilgrim because his homeland was some 900 miles away in North Africa, what is today modern Libya. We know that the Jews had scattered that far. We know that it was Jewish settlements, but there's there's nothing to say he was there because he was there for the Passover. Nothing to suggest And as he walked into the city, and as this procession was making its way out of the city, the Romans accosted him and said, you're going to carry this man's cross. Now what is so, so fascinating about this verse is that it's so uncharacteristic of Mark to tell us anything more than his name. And he does. He tells us he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. If you read through Mark's gospel, Mark is the one gospel writer who will give you the least amount of information about an individual, but here he tells us something more. And I want to suggest to you that the reason that is the case is because Mark understood that his readers, who were Christians in Rome, knew who Alexander and Rufus were. In fact, if you were to turn to Romans, you don't need to, but you were to go to Romans chapter 16, Paul writing many years later to the church in Rome. In verse 13, Paul says, Greet Rufus, who was chosen in the Lord, and his mother also, who is a mother in the Lord to me. Which suggests to us that if this is Rufus, the son of Simon the Cyrene, not only was he a Christian, but so too was his mother, undoubtedly was his brother, Alexander. And I want to go even further and say it was at this moment or thereabouts that Simon, when he was asked to carry the cross, became a follower of Jesus. I'm absolutely persuaded of that, in fact. 
Because look at verse 21 again and see Mark's very intentional word choice. He said that the Romans compelled him to carry his cross. And if you've read through Mark's gospel, you know that in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, literally carry his cross and follow me. And the first person in Mark's gospel to do what Jesus commanded was Simon the Cyrene. If you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, Mark is saying to us, and this is the most wonderful and glorious thing ever, that Jesus, when he was at his weakest, when he was most humiliated, lying flat on the ground, on his face, the strength of his love, the wonder-working power of his grace, Arrested and captivated Simon the Cyrene. And not only did it impact Simon who took up Christ's cross and followed him, but it impacted his entire family. If you need to be convinced that Christ is a king of a kingdom that is not of this world, see this. When he was at his weakest, he was mighty to save. To save Simon, this foreigner, and to save his family as well. You know, yesterday, can you imagine if Charles had said to the Royal Grenadiers, stop the carriage now? And if he'd shouted out, come on, everybody, join this procession, come follow me. Come, come into the palace. You're going to come up in the balcony with me. And as the whole battalion, as they hail him as king, he said, come, stand with me. It would have been jaw-dropping, eye-popping. It would have been absolutely incredible. But Charles didn't do that. But you know, Jesus did that. It wasn't an accident that he fell. It wasn't coincidence. It was divine appointment. This is a picture of what he does, is that he calls followers to follow him, to share in his life, to become children of his father, and to have all of the inheritance that is his. And so, brothers and sisters, as we journey with Jesus from Pilate's palace to the hill of Golgotha, can we just come to a spiritual standstill for just one moment? And can I ask you this question? Have you denied yourself, taken up your cross, and are you following Jesus? Do you see that the one who suffered, who looked like a defeated and humiliated king, is actually the glorious king who is mighty to save? And he's mighty to save you. And he's mighty to transform not just you, but your family, your friends, and your colleagues. And he's mighty to let you share in all of his glory, majesty, and splendor. Well, the second thing that happens in the procession, we're told in verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. 
Now, if you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, there's something strange about verse 22. And they brought Jesus. Why is that strange? Because verse 20 says, and they led him out to crucify him. So not only was there a moment where Jesus was carrying, was unable to carry his cross, it now seems that Jesus was unable to walk to the cross that the Romans or the accosted other people had to carry Jesus to the place where he would be crucified. You need to see what Mark wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus was finished. He was exhausted. He was so feeble and fragile that he needed to be carried to Golgotha. They brought him there. And so we we see here Jesus at his weakest. But hold on a minute. If you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, what happens next? And they offered him wine mixed with mar. They offered him this um, cocktail, this concoction of narcotics. It would um, dull and dampen the pain. It would deaden his senses. It would allow him to cope. The Romans loved to to give people this because they never wanted their victim to die before crucifixion. Now, they wanted their victims always to die a slow, painful death. They wanted it to last long. And so they offer this to Jesus. And here's Jesus at his weakest. He's been carried to the cross. And we see his strength. Look at what it says next. But he did not take it. At his weakest, we see the strength of his determination and his love to go through with the shame and the suffering of the cross. He can barely stand. He cannot hold himself up. And yet when he's offered the drugs that will help him, he says no. Spurgeon asked the question, why did Jesus say no? Was it because he loved suffering? He said that can't be the answer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shrank in the face of suffering. He said, if it's possible, take this cup from me. It's just like us. He didn't want to go through any suffering. So why then did he refuse this drink? Spurgeon says, it was not for love of suffering. It was for love of souls. It was because Jesus knew that if he was going to win salvation for his people, he had to suffer with his full faculties clear. He had to take the punishment and the penalty for his people fully aware and conscious. He has said no to this drink for you and for me who trust in him. 
He said no because he loved us and he wanted to pay our penalty in full. He wanted to save us to the uppermost. And you know the other reason that Spurgeon says he he said no to this? It's because Jesus had unfinished business. He had a prayer meeting that he would not miss. His own prayer meeting. His first words on the cross to come out of his lips is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He'd unfinished business because he says to his beloved disciple, John, take care of my mum. He, he, he said no to the drink because he had unfinished business. He would tell a fellow condemned criminal hanging on the cross next to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. At his weakest, he said no because of his strength of love to serve to the very end. What a savior. Mark wants us to see, okay, the Romans have heaped this mockery in him. Well, look at it. Jesus is mocking them. You think his shame and his suffering? No, no, no. This is him winning salvation for his people. This is him being victorious over our enemies. Death, sin, and Satan. And then we read, as the royal procession comes to an end, a characteristic statement of Mark. Three words in the Greek, four words in English. And they crucified Out of all the four gospel writers, Mark gives us the shortest account on the crucifixion of Jesus. He shows remarkable restraint. All he says is, and they crucified him. Why? Well, some have said, well, He was writing to Christians in Rome. Every Roman citizen knew what crucifixion was, so he didn't have to retell them what it was. Perhaps. But maybe it was because he didn't want to satisfy the the morbid minds of people who want to know all the gruesome and gory details. Or maybe it's because there's no spiritual benefit to be derived from going through all the gruesome details. But you know what there is benefit in? Is understanding that in crucifixion, they took the beam that was carried, they nailed his hands to it, and they hoisted him up. And that's all that crucifixion, in its simplest, shortest, that's all that it means. They lifted him up. They hoisted him up. I don't know if it's ever struck you, but there's something really strange about crucifixion, something ironic, paradox, Paradoxical, criminals are high and lifted up. Now, in the Roman mindset, it's because crucifixion is really really to function as a deterrent. It's really a public advertisement. It's a major broadcast. Don't mess with Rome. But in the providence of God, Jesus been high and lifted up as he was crucified is, uh, is, is pointing us to the reality that he is the king upon 
Not just the cross, but on his throne. They enthroned him. One commentator says, with utter objectivity, with no trace of playing on the reader's emotions, Mark announces the crucifixion, the most cruel and horrifying punishment. Rome's terror apparatus, infamous for its infliction of pain and ignominy victim. And then he goes on to say, and this is his enthronement. Now, We'll come back this evening and we'll look at the crucifixion as Mark records it in the verses that follow. But I just want to finish off looking at the end of verse 24. Look at what it says. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them. Now, just so you don't miss it, that mean, just so you know that as soon as they, after uh, the procedure in crucifixion was, after they offered you the, the drink of wine mixed with Mark, they stripped you naked. And everyone in the commentators, when, when you read them, they'll say, the Jews used to hate crucifixion because their sensibilities, a man naked, no way. And so often when Jews were crucified, there was a loincloth put over their private parts. We have no evidence that that loincloth was put on Jesus. Now, it doesn't bear contemplating that he most likely hung naked. Such was the shame and humiliation of the Romans' crucifixion of their victim that they mocked them by stripping them naked and hung them for all to see. And then we read, they divided his garments among themselves, casting lots for them, deciding what each should take. I want you to just come to a standstill at the foot of the cross. You've got Jesus hanging naked, And, and, and he's winning the redemption of his people on the cross. And down below it, you've got the Roman soldiers gambling on Golgotha. So indifferent to what's going above, on above their heads. You know, as a young minister, I would say one of the strangest experiences I ever had was taking a funeral. When you take a funeral, if it's a graveside funeral, the undertakers will say, you ride in the hearse with the coffin. So you jump into this hearse and there's four seats in it, so there's often three undertakers and the minister. And in the car ride to the cemetery and from the cemetery, the conversation is about football. It's about jokes. And you say... Guys, how's your day going? They'll say, this is just number three of five. You see, these, let's have a bit of compassion for these soldiers, right? They were hardened to death because this was just another day at the office. What do you do when you wait for your victim to die? You play games. You have fun. And, and their fun was rolling dice to see who got Jesus' belt, who got Jesus' tunic, who got his sandals, who got his head garb. And little did they know as they're sitting gambling away at the foot of the cross, they're gambling their eternity away, indifferent to the fact that the one above them is suffering in the place of sinners so that sinners can be saved. And you know, 
It's like Mark tells us this so that you and I would have a picture of ourselves. We can be so busy, so focused, so taken up with everyday realities that we remain completely indifferent to the eternal realities that life is all about. Jesus, our King, suffering to save us. If you look at the cross from a human perspective, you see sorrow, shame, humiliation. If you look at the cross with the eyes of faith, you see not sorrow, shame, and humiliation alone. You see victory, glory, and accomplishment. John Calvin said, in effect, you know when they stripped him naked and they hung him naked above their heads, he was naked so that he could clothe sinners in righteousness. So that they would be able one day to stand in his presence perfect, faultless. There, there, there were these Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross and they're playing games and they think they're the most powerful empire in the world. They think they're the most powerful men. They think they're just about to take this man's life. Little do they know this man on the cross was giving his life. Giving his life so that sinners like them could be saved. And so as we come and as we stand at the foot of the cross, let me ask you this question. Do you see that the one upon the cross is the king upon his throne? He's naked and he's shamed because he's taken your sin and my sin, your shame and my shame, and he's doing it all so that we will be able to stand faultless before his throne at the last. You know, yesterday, I found it captivating. There were aspects of that service that were, were really fascinating. The majesty and the splendor, the pomp and the pageantry, honestly, incredible. The moment where, the, where, where, he, where Charles comes out on the throne and the king's guards all take their hats off. The three cheers. It was incredible. But ironically, Charles has done nothing to save us. King Jesus has done everything to save us. No pomp, no pageantry, no majesty, no splendor, no human dignity. So that you and I could be righteous, crowned as kings and queens with him to reign forevermore. All Hail, King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said to your disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up cross and follow me. <laughs> Jesus, we thank you for your divine appointment with Simon the Cyrene. We thank you that at your weakest, we see that you're so mighty to save. We see that when you were so fragile and feeble, you had the strength of love and character to suffer in our place and for our sin as our king. And so we come to you. 
And it would be appropriate for all of us to get down on our knees and bow our heads and say, All hail King Jesus, because you are worthy. We thank you that we unworthy sinners this morning are invited to come and feast with you, to celebrate what you've done for us. And this party might look simple, bread and wine, but we know that it is a taste of what is to come at the last. When people like Simon, Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus and their mother will join us around the table of you, the king. And we will feast with you. And we will say, worthy are you, the lamb who was slain for us. All hail you, King Jesus. We pray this in your glorious name. Amen.